certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. Today, court heard the crucial moment when prime suspect Lance Williams was cleared and the Claremont serial killings investigation took a dramatic turn. Welcome to week 12 of Claremont in Conversation. Natalie Bongiolo, Tim Clark and Brendan Chapman with you today. Tim, this was a pivotal turning point and this was revealed by the head of Macro at the time. Yes, Matt. So this is Detective Sergeant Jim Stanbury, who was, as you say, the boss of Macro. Um, the investigating officer, and then for us, uh, for some months, the senior investigating officer. So the IO was the man that uh, made sure everyone else was doing their work, and the senior guy would sit over the top of him, and that would be a strategic role. And uh, and Detective Sergeant Stanbury described today how he had gone from one to the other over the over the journey, but at all times he was very senior in the macro task force um, and. Uh, so senior, in fact, that when this forensic review was done in 2008 and they found the exhibits that some hadn't been tested ever, um, others had been tested, but they could be tested again, it was he and Laurie Webb who flew to London with these uh, four um, security envelopes um, laden with uh, evidence um, and then took them straight to the FSS lab in London and then later on to Birmingham. And during his time there, he also had various meetings with the FSS people to basically map out um, all the testing and all their priorities. And does he tell you about the moment when he gets this breakthrough phone call? Well, he did, yes. So this was in the uh, August and September that they flew over. It wasn't until the December that he got those that, that call. Um, as we discussed earlier, there was some priorities put on other exhibits other than the fingernails, which meant that they weren't tested until very late in that year. And then when those results came back, he did. He was the one that took the call from jo- Dr. Jonathan Whitaker in the UK to say, we think we have a male DNA, highly discriminatory male DNA profile from Kira's fingernails. Um, uh, and then he got a report an official report from Dr. Whittaker, um, just two pages, but it was two pages that I, I'm sure he was absolutely thrilled to receive. He got it on an attachment in an email, um, and I'm sure he printed it out and kissed it and waved it above <laughs> his head and then presumably gone and shown his boss because that was that was the moment. Um, well, it was one of two moments, actually. That was the moment that they knew they had something. And then after Christmas, um, because it took some... Um, wrangling to be able to put it into the, uh, uh, the Australian DNA database because they use slightly different um, DNA uh, profiling systems. Brandon, I'm sure, will be able to tell us the difference between SGM plus and profiler plus. So it took some wrangling to get it actually to get it into the system. But when they did, and then it, it it did produce a match, and that match, of course, we know was with the. Uh, the samples taken from the Karakata rape back in 1995. So that was really the moment. It was the moment when we thought we might have someone and then there was the second moment when they really did think they had someone. It was after that, Dr. Um, D.S. Stanbury said, that was 
that was the turning point, literally the turning point. Everything changed after that. The whole profile of the investigation changed after that. What they were able to do changed after that. And what they and the people they were able to rule in and, and as you mentioned, rule out also changed after that. So over the whole of the journey, 25 years, those three weeks around New Year, Christmas 2008-2009 was, uh, was literally the turning point. Because they would have, at I mean, prior to this, we knew that they were focusing on Lance Williams, and um, you also heard that they were that they had a whole number of people who they were looking at um, up until that time. Yeah, that, that was an interesting little tidbit today. So on, on some of the documents that were um, placed before the court this morning, were the list of everything that was taken um, to the UK in 2008. And amongst those, we uh, we now know, obviously, were three bags from the macro Claremont investigation and then this other um, bag of evidence, which is from Operation Ambrose, which we discussed last week, was the Jared Ross murder investigation. So all those exhibits went over together, literally in a carry-on suitcase that sat at the Dr. Uh, Dr. Webb and D.S. Stanbury's feet on the trip over, even the delay they had in, in the Singapore stopover, that, that that case never left their sight. And when they got to London, it was hotel, shower, cab, Lambeth, where they dropped it off at FSS. And included in that, we found out today, were samples from nine persons of interest that, that spanned both those investigations. So that's a significant number of people that they thought significant enough to have A, taken samples from them, and B, take them those samples all the way to the UK. But that was what they did, that was what they had, and the, and the reason for that was they wanted comparative tests done. So they wanted all the tests done on all the physical exhibits from um, Kira and from Jane and, and, and from Jared, presumably. And then they want, wanted them compared to the person of interest samples, obviously, so they could either rule them in or rule them out or rule them um, for further investigation so that so we, we 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 knew there was a number we heard last week there were a number of persons of interest but now we know there were there were nine which is which is a significant amount of people mm. that police um were, were keeping a very very close eye on and brendan is it i guess for scientists just as important to be looking at ways of excluding those or eliminating uh, people as well as looking for that match. Yeah, ab- well, yeah, oh, sorry, sorry Brandon, yeah, go on. Yeah, ab- absolutely, Nat. Um, it's, it, like our, our job as forensic scientists isn't to lock people up. Um, it's, it's really our job to, to report the evidence as it is. And if that evidence exonerates someone, then that's just as useful um, in in getting to the, I suppose, the end of an investigation as a piece of evidence that um, does point to someone. And just out of curiosity, in the work that you've done, have you had to fly overseas or anywhere with, with evidence that, not asking you what the cases would be, but with evidence in your possession? And, um, you know, is that a big task and is it something that um, people take very, very seriously? It's it's not something I've done. Um, it's it's actually quite, I suppose, uncommon to be taking samples or exhibits outside of the jurisdiction, um, because 
without putting a number to it, a large number of cases we can um, undertake forensic analysis here in Perth. We're, we're well equipped here in Perth among the various forensic agencies that we have. So it's really, um, for want of a better term, those those one percenters that where we've exhausted our opportunities here in WA that, that we need to look to those uh, other analysis techniques that, that aren't offered here in WA, um, which in some cases may be offered in the East Coast. Um, so it's not always international. Sometimes it's within Australia, um, but it's also generally quite rare. Yeah. And Tim, you heard today that um, Jim Stanbury actually made multiple trips to the UK, taking further items over for testing. Yeah, many, many times it sounds like uh, the Stanbury made that long flight to London and then that short cab ride to the hotel and then a, another cab ride to various uh, labs around the country um, after, after FSS got this breakthrough. It sounds like they basically became the lab of choice for um, WA police when they needed, uh, um, as Brandon said, a 1% of the next level. And this next level at this time, dear Stanbury explained today, was this low copy number testing, which he said wasn't certainly wasn't done in Perth at that time. And to his mind, wasn't even done in Australia at that time. So that is why they went so far to get this test done because it literally couldn't be done anywhere else by the sound of it um, to this level um, and, to, and to that um, level of, of knowledge. So yes, the 2008 trip obviously provided the breakthrough and after that it sounds like a slew of exhibits in both macro um, and various other major crimes in Perth made that long trip for the same analysis. Um, in 2009, um, about 170 more exhibits went over, um, which included vegetation, um, other swabs, other samples. The James fingernails went over at that time, all for similar analysis, um, to firstly to see what could be done and then what should be done first, and then to see if any of the other results came through. 2010, there was another trip done, um, ostensibly to <clears throat> take more over, more uh, exhibits over from, from this case and other cases, but also then to, to get a handle on exactly what was over in the UK as well, because it sounds like so much had gone over, but um, it, was, it, was <clears throat> it was getting to the point where reviews and audits needed to be done on the UK side as well as in the Australian side. And then in 2011, DS Stanbury had to go over to bring it all back because FSS, it was announced by the UK government, was shutting down as, as the entity it was. Um, it would not be do, uh, uh, undertaking that work for police forces and overseas police forces anymore. And so DS uh, Stanbury had the unenviable task of going over to the UK and logging everything that, um, or checking and logging everything that had been taken everything all the extracts that had been made all the results all the samples everything and then it was his job to make sure it was all checked off and then all shipped back to Perth and now once again we're not just talking macro here we're talking other major major serious crimes in Perth and it all had to be boxed up security tagged double bagged and then sent back um, securely 
via obviously via air courier this time and then the same process had to be undertaken at the other end um dear stanley said it just took him two and a half days just to check everything that was was coming um a 277 page audit report review list whatever you want to call it spreadsheet was was compiled with every single exhibit and then he uh, he, he counted them all on and he counted them all back again so um it was obviously a massive undertaking that particular job but that just goes to show that the, the span and expanse of uh, forensic work that was being sent overseas in those years after um, that major macro breakthrough was made. I imagine they must have been very unhappy campers at that point in time when all of these exhibits are over there and they're really leaning on FSS for this work only to find out that it's going to be shut down. And of course, as you've mentioned, it was the only place at the time doing this, you know, um, LCN testing. Brendan, is LCN testing a method that is still used today? It's uh, it's a difficult one to answer because the techniques that we use now, um, the, the standard technique actually utilises more... Um, rounds of that that process of PCR than we used to. So uh, to give you an example, the old um, Profiler Plus routine testing that we used to use here uh, was 28 cycles and we considered LCN as anything above that approaching, you know, up up to say 35 cycles. The the standard testing uh, that we use now is 30 cycles. So some would argue that the normal test we use now is is an LCN technique. Um, there certainly are laboratories that offer extensions of that, um, you know, more cycles than 30. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's, it's not necessarily a line in the sand where 28 cycles is, is normal and 30 or, or 29 and above is, is LCN. So today, if uh, you wanted to take it to the next level, do you know where that would be if we wanted to, if this is a case in Perth and you do want to go to that next level, where would that lab be? Would it be Pathwest or are we looking at somewhere overseas? So the next level of testing now um, gives us a lot of different Options. It's not necessarily just LCN testing. Um, we are we're we're quite uh, at the cusp of a whole range of new types of testing that we can do to identify people um, from DNA found at a crime scene. So we can do testing in other countries now that can identify physical features of a person, like eye colour hair colour um, and what we call their, their biogeographic ancestry, which in, in I suppose layperson speak is their ethnicity or race. Um, so Europe is quite progressive in that space. So there's institutes like the, the NFI, the Netherlands uh, Forensic Institute, um, that are quite ahead of the game in that sort of space. Um, but LCN's probably gone a little bit off the... Um, as as a trend with all of these other opportunities that are available now. And we've talked about this in previous podcasts, but you may be able to shed some light. Do you have any uh, greater insight into what caused the closing of FSS? Yeah, sure. Um, the, the, the state of forensics in the UK at the time was where the 
policing and, and government agencies using forensic services. We're actually uh, using a kind of open tender sort of process to do that work. So a number of private companies emerged that could offer forensic testing um, and I suppose the nature of private companies was that they could be quite uh, competitive um, and and price their results, I suppose, or price their, their product lower than the FSS. Um, and as a result of that, the FSS saw a downturn in forensic work from the police and, and government agencies to the point where they basically got driven out of business by by private company companies that were able to offer the the kind of large bulk of the work like the the day in day out run of the mill sort of stuff we we look at it now as a forensic community i suppose as a mistake it, generally speaking because forensic science isn't always a money-making exercise it, it like a lot of these state offered services it, it can and often does run at a loss or, or is expensive to maintain um, and if you want to keep boutique services like the offering of of things like lcn that you don't do really regularly there needs to be some kind of uh, i suppose government funding to do that so that's kind of how, how they went out of business for want of a better word i don't know if tim's got anything more to add being a brit <laughs> well um I, I can from the reading and research i've done um a lot of people in the uk at the time concurred with what brendan's just said that it was a it, it was a lack of foresight and a lack of um a lack of proper decision making really and most of that decision was apparently made because of the bottom line rather than uh, taking into account the services offered and particularly the research and development that would that had been done at, at, at fss over the years um it'd be interesting to see if dr whittaker touches on, on the on the political ramifications of that closure when he gives his evidence i would have, would have thought he, he would but uh, but anyway um, but what it did do um, at the time, and this, this is what Dia Stanbury said on the stand today, was it, it created a massive headache for for WA police and I'm sure other police forces around the world because not only were they having then to physically secure the continuity of all those vital exhibits that they'd entrusted into FSS, but they also had to find someone else to do the work that they, they, were, they were hoping were going to lead to major breakthroughs. Uh, it transpired that they did find another lab, a lab called Cellmark, which we will hear a lot more of in the coming days and weeks, because it was then Cellmark that took over a lot of um, the uh, the DNA work analysis later on in the macro investigation, particularly um, around about 217 and 218 after Mr. Edwards's arrest, when they were going over old ground i suppose to see if there were any there was anything else um that could possibly link mr edwards to any of the other exhibits so it was salmark in the uk that um did that work as well so it obviously didn't put the west australian police off 
um, searching for other avenues in the UK. But at the time, it certainly it certainly made a lot of work for them in terms of securing um, with, uh, evidence that they they had, and uh, and obviously finding someone to uh, to find possibly new evidence that they might need. And as you mentioned, Tim, it wasn't just Claremont. Also over there, they were working on some of the biggest cases Western Australia had seen, in addition to Claremont. Absolutely. So another of these little flashes upon a screen, which gives you the flashes of inspiration. Two operations in particular were um, were, uh, showed on the screen in court today as uh, this is when D.S. Stanby went over and secured all the exhibits, had to bring them all back. As I say, it wasn't just macro. So Operation Dargan was one, which uh, some listeners might recognise in Western Australia. Our, our listeners further afield won't. That was the um, the murder of a lady called Corinne Rainey, who actually worked in the Supreme Court as a registrar. She went missing after a boot scooting class, and her body was found buried in Kings Park, which is the major main um, uh, park in the middle of Perth. That created a, a case that is still ongoing because it is still unsolved. Her husband, Lloyd Rainey, who was a state prosecutor at one time, a very high-profile barrister in Perth, was charged with that murder but was acquitted. Um, and that has led to all sorts of other legal ramifications, including over Mr Rainey's licence to practice law. So uh, police involved in Dargan obviously thought that FSS could help them there so that they had a, a big lot of exhibits. And another operation was Operation Elgin, which was linked to the double homicide of two, a drug-related double homicide in a, in a, in a suburb called Greenmount in Perth, which uh, eventually was solved. Someone did go to prison for that and got life um, term. Um, and so they used FSS in some of the uh, some of the exhibits there. And just the psychical nature of the law in Western Australia, the actual sentencing judge in uh, the, the case of Operation Elgin had just happened to be Justice Stephen Hall. So uh, uh, it's just one of those, uh, another very strange coincidence, but it also, as I say, mostly illustrated how much uh, trust, we should say, the WA police had put in FSS and their work over there. Um, and it was mostly after this major breakthrough that Dear Stanbury talked about today. Um, so what did Paul Jovic hone in on during cross-examination, if anything? Well, he started, but he didn't finish his cross today. Um, at first, he asked um, their Stanbury not about what you might expect him to ask about, you know, were you sure these bags were secure? Did anyone touch them in Singapore when you went to the toilet? Nothing like that. He was actually asked about a couple of, well, slightly um, off-the-wall things, there was um, a witness statement that he'd taken from a, a witness that we previously heard about, um, which was in relation to some of the exhibits in the Karakata rape. Um, he was asked about whether he basically verbaled this, this witness and, and maybe put words into her mouth or certainly put words into her, her statement. In that context, um, D.S. Stanbury was asked whether the mislabeling listeners right remem- might remember about the whether there was was a skirt or a pair of shorts that were found at Karakata. Um, and that that was where this uh, witness um, was asked previously about by Mr. Jovic, and uh, he re- returned to that with uh, with this 
Stanbury um, this afternoon. But the bulk of the cross-examination will be tomorrow now. He was asked to come back because we had to interpose the UK witness, the video link witness, um, and that could only be done later in the afternoon. So, um, dear Stanbury was, uh, was was quite a relaxed witness, and he was quite relaxed leaving and uh, and, and saying um, see you later to his his police colleagues in the back of the court. So um, we will um, we will see him again tomorrow, mm-hmm. and um, I'm sure there'll be um, some more questions about what he had to say today. Another thing I found quite interesting today was that the the couple you mentioned um, he sent over to the UK, uh, Jane Rimmer's watch, among other things. Mm. And I found it interesting that the people who found that watch, they had their DNA taken as well. Brendan, is that the sort of thing that would happen that, you know, someone uh, finds something from a crime scene and then has their DNA taken to exclude? glued them or yeah that's that's exactly how it works um and and it is exactly that what we would say for exclusion because if someone's come across an exhibit or they've found an exhibit or they've been anywhere in contact with it it's possible that they might um transfer their material onto it um and the reason for that is well the reason for getting an exclusionary sample from them is that otherwise we if we test that and we do recover a DNA profile, we kind of have these, what I call ghosts that we're chasing. So we're looking for a DNA profile for someone that who's, that actually isn't involved in the commission of the offence. And we've got legislation um, for exactly that purpose, where someone who volunteers their DNA um, to the police or, or, or the agency that's collecting it um, can specify that that DNA is only used within the purposes of that particular case. So their DNA would only be searched against any DNA found within that case, um, which I guess is kind of to protect that person from the, you know, the, the, the instance where they might then be connected to a crime that they committed 20 years ago. Um, so that's part that's part of the the legislation that we've got here in this state and and in fact across the country. Right. Yeah. We had a chat about this um, earlier because we had talked about when they took the seventeen thousand DNA samples um, during that period that we wondered if they had offered people immunity. I guess to get that many people to come forward and offer their DNA, um, you can imagine some of them would have been worried about things from the past. Um, yeah. that they may have had. The terminology that the, uh, the legislation uses, I think, is is volunteer for limited purposes um, compared to a volunteer for unlimited purposes, which means that they can be searched against anything. Yeah. Now, Tim, you told us how the uh, cross-examination was suspended so that you could hear from the UK witnesses. So can you tell us a little bit about who that was? Yes, yeah, so this, this was another um, FSS staff member um, back in the day who had done a little bit of work on the uh, on the fingernails um, the 42 46 48 and 40 um, she was involved in in some of the process there but most of her questioning actually went to work she'd done much later on in just before FSS closed in fact um, she was um, asked to do some work on these two petri dishes that contained samples of Kira's hair. We'll hear a lot about those um, in some weeks from now. Labelled Q7 and Q71, which was hair taken from Kira 
um, around about the time of her discovery, um, isolated. It was actually sent to the FBI in 1999 for some serious analysis over there. Then it came back, and then it was also sent to FSS. Um, the reason you will hear a lot about it is because there were fibres allegedly contained in there that link Kira with Mr. Edwards. But that wasn't the reason why this work um, was being done at FSS. They, this was actually more mitochondrial DNA work that was being done, doing, done over there. But it, it led to this witness, Ms. Underwood, um, handling the, uh, the Petri dishes. And so that was why she was um, being questioned about that, because she was actually came into contact with them. And we know um, that there is going to be some suggestion of possible other sources for these fibres and so that that's why um, she was she was called and needed to be um, briefly cross-examined it wasn't it wasn't due to controversial evidence or it was continuity evidence more to the point but it needs to be done it needs to be done late because of the uh, because of the time difference and so that's why we that's why we had a little uh, jaunt over the uk a bit like uh, ds stanbury did all those years ago <laughs> uh, brendan can you just give us a little refresher into mitochondrial dna testing yeah um, so going back to i guess the the imagery of the fried egg and the cell so the mitochondria is um, kind of part of the cell machinery that lives around and in the, the white of the cell. Um, although with relevance to hair, which is usually where it's referred, it's, it's more commonly found in the hair shaft where what we call nuclear DNA or, or the normal DNA is not found. Um, and it's, it's DNA that has its, its own genome um, and we can look at, regions on that DNA um, to uh, identify a person um, through maternal lines. So your mitochondria is passed down from mother to son or daughter um, and that genetic material is inherited and so we can look at that and it's most often used to exclude someone. So if we have a crime scene sample and um, a person's mitochondrial DNA it's, it's very easy to say, oh, well, that's not a match, so that person's excluded. If we do have, I suppose, what we call a match, it's, it's not as conclusive as, as a nuclear DNA profile, the, the stuff that we talk about in 90% of forensics, but it certainly can narrow down the field of suspects. Yeah. Well, we actually have a very interesting question from Liz in Melbourne who wanted to ask you is how a forensic lab or even just a work surface is cleaned so that it becomes a sterile site. If it is possible for DNA to be recovered from clothing that has gone through a washing machine cycle in some cases, I'm assuming Windex or hot soapy water will not be good enough. Yes, and without providing too much instruction for people how to get away with murder. <laughs> um, the, the most commonly used... Um, cleaning product for a forensic lab is is bleach or hypochlorite um, which is very uh, is very useful at breaking open cells and just like breaking down DNA destroy it like cleaving DNA chopping it up um, saying that Windex cleaning detergents even the soaps you wash your hands with will will assist all of these sort of things can assist, but if we want to completely decontaminate a lab, 
bleach is what we use. Um, and it is true that DNA can um, res reside in a wash cycle. Um, we did research on that with the retention of sperm cells, for instance, up, which was retained up to uh, six wash cycles mm -hmm. in clothing um, that we published back in 2018. So it's... Um, bleach is the way to go for the, for the budding um, nefarious types out there um, but soaps and detergents are certainly quite effective as well I imagine people are thinking really deeply about the cross-contamination situation and instruments being reused and, and those sorts of things Yeah, and, and th there's other tools we can use we can buy commercially available laboratory reagent grade um, laboratory grade reagent sorry um, for decontaminating areas we can also use ultraviolet light um, with uh, things like uh, UV cabinets similar to um, what you might see at uh, dentists there's, there's a whole range of tools we've got none of them are completely perfect but we try and um, use a combination approach as often as possible and we know, of course, that the contamination rate is very low around Australia, 3% or so, yeah, which has yeah. popped up. Um, another question from Jean-Marie Rudd, who asks, given the ferociousness of the murders, is it surprising that there has been a lack of DNA found? The crimes were aggressive and the girls had defensive wounds, suggestive of a struggle. Yet a microscopic amount of DNA under one fingernail and small fibre samples were all that could be found after significant forensic testing over the years. I find that extraordinary. Is it unusual that there is such a limited DNA or am I basing my assumptions on what I've seen on TV? Kira's fingernails were torn off in the struggle. She didn't tear them off herself. So why no other DNA underneath them? Um, without probably com commenting directly with relation to this case, um, the, the CSI effect that we get from television is largely false. Um, and it, while it makes for great entertainment, unfortunately, things aren't always that easy. Um, DNA is complicated. Um, it's not... It, it really depends on what is left behind, the load of what's left behind, the duration of how long between when it was deposited and when it was recovered. And you also need to consider a whole range of other environmental factors that can come into play with regards to whether bacterial activity um, in, the, in the instance where there's any sort of um, decomposition that, that can have a huge effect as well. So it's it's there's not a not an easy answer i mean I, I can't help but wonder if the csi effect that you talk about you know had something to do with this almost this boom in forensic sciences and then almost the the bust of somewhere like fss it, it is a well published phenomena the csi effect it's in journal article <laughs> after journal article um it it really is and it has a range of responsibilities for what we now see um, we now come to expect in in court that there will be dna evidence that there will be all of this forensic evidence and so historically cases where we might have convicted or a jury might have convicted someone on the basis of eyewitness reports and alibis and motives and all of those conventional detective techniques 
are now not enough. People, a, a jury of peers requires DNA evidence. They require, well, after this case, they'll require fibre evidence. They, they require everything that they see on TV. Um, one of the, the important kind of little catchphrases that we use, though, is the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And what that means is just because there's not evidence there, it doesn't always mean that that doesn't mean something happened. There's another catchphrase that always sticks in my mind, of course, from shows like CSI, which is that the DNA doesn't lie. And that that is the, probably one of the true true things that have come out of that show, is that it, it doesn't lie. Um, and... No, and you actually find that most defences against DNA, you'll notice in courtrooms, they're not they're not arguing about the DNA result. They're arguing about how we arrived at the DNA result or how we're reporting the DNA result. They're not arguing the actual results because the DNA doesn't lie. Okay, so they haven't done a completely terrible job, just a bit of a terrible job. <laughs> um, Tim, do you know what's in store tomorrow? Well, um, we're going to have, as I said, more of D.S. Stanbury in the morning. Um, he will be. He will continue his cross-examination. Um, and then my understanding is we're going to have um, another um, police officer um, who will, again, go to um, some continuity evidence. Um, the rest of the week will be taken up with um, a couple more um, Path West um, staff members. Um, and then someone that Brennan might know quite well, um, a, a chap called Scott Egan, who was very senior at Pathwest um, at the time, um, who is slated to be one of the later witnesses um, this week. Um, so the whole of this week, again, will be taking up, taken up with um, DNA. Um, but we, we, are getting, we are getting towards the end of the DNA portion of the trial. Um, and we, as I've said before, that will conclude with Dr. Jonathan Whitaker, who's the reporting scientist from FSS at the time, one of the pioneers of LCN. Um, he's not on the list this week, but we do expect him possibly to um, um, crop up sometime next week. Well, we look forward to the week ahead. Thank you both for your time. Please feel free to email us your questions and feedback to Claremont Podcast at wanews.com.au. And we'll be back tomorrow with day 52 of the trial. Hope you can join myself, Tim and Alison Fan then. This podcast was produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. Enjoying this podcast? If the story behind the headline matters to you, then you can count on thewest.com.au to deliver. For more on Claremont the trial, follow the live blog, watch the nightly news updates, and sign up for daily email updates at thewest.com.au. Subscribe now for just a dollar a day at thewest.com.au.